All right, Jesse, last week's loser, murderer, slash fake dog cancer pill distributor has my blood still boiling. What's the case this week? A Christmas morning confession leads police down a rabbit hole of misguided love, decidedly unmarried behavior, and victims of lust, greed, and murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Frey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about wasted potential, poisonous friends and lovers, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, chef's kiss. Mwah! To all of you guys for your reviews this week, it warmed the cockles of our little Scroogey hearts. Uh, Speak for yourself. Okay, there's no Scrooges involved in this family. (laughs) We got nothing. We're all just merry, merry little, little like rats in the Muppets Christmas Carol over here. I like really love a creative review. I do too. I'm always so surprised um, by the nuances and the effort you guys put in. And we love all of our reviews, the simple, the simple reviews, like five stars being like, you chicks are cool or whatever. That means just as much as to us. But I'm like constantly in awe of, of everything you guys do for us. So thank you so much, really. I mean, this is the holiday season. This is the time of gratitude and love and appreciation. And we cannot tell you how much appreciation we have for you and Andy for our Patreons as well. Yeah, totally. We are. I think we're going to do a contest this week as well, probably by the time this comes out in the middle of it. But I am really looking forward to it. And also, if you are interested in Patreon, it's really simple. You just head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the goodies that you get. And always with our patrons, if there's anything that you feel that you are missing or that you would love to see, I know we're going to have a lot of bonus content this month, but please feel free to always reach out to us. Messaging us directly on Patreon is very, very easy. Absolutely. And speaking of Patreon, we're thrilled as always this week to welcome a couple new patrons. Welcome to Yvette A. and Jennifer L. for joining the lovers. All right, everyone. Well, thank you. We are going to be jumping into, we have two Christmassy type theme true crimes coming at you over the next couple weeks. And we want to say also, I believe when this comes out, I'm not entirely sure, but around that time, Hanukkah should be starting too. So happy Hanukkah to our listeners. And yeah, I think it's the 19th, right? Yep, Monday the exactly. 19th. So happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. I hope you guys are all celebrating and having such a great time with your families right now. We are going to start with a decidedly unmerry Christmas, relatively themed true crime. So I think we should get right into it. Let's do it. 
On Christmas morning, 1977, 31-year-old Jerry Davies pulled his Chevrolet into a spot outside of the Madison, Wisconsin police station. He shuddered as he stepped out of the warmth of his vehicle. It was cold and gray that morning, 22 degrees below zero at night, and no amount of twinkling lights or holiday wishes could warm his body or his soul. Jerry was exhausted. He felt as though he had not slept in years. His hands trembled as he grasped the station door handle, his fingers briefly sticking to the door handle that was so cold it felt almost hot. Jerry staggered as he fell into the station, leading the on-duty cop who had pulled the short straw and working Christmas Day to believe he was drunk or maybe seriously ill. He eyeballed Jerry, taking in his lack of gloves and hat on such a cold day. Jerry's eyes were bloodshot behind the wire-rimmed glasses that slipped down his red, bony nose. And then he opened his mouth. Last night, I helped bury a body in a snowbank, he blurted out. The cop regarded him skeptically. Could this just be some bizarre holiday prank? But the man in front of him seemed both earnest and destroyed. I don't know who it was, but last night I buried a man in a snowbank, he repeated. I can take you to where the body is. And so it happened that veteran homicide detective Chuck Lulling was coaxed from the warmth of a holiday with his wife, children, and grandchildren. And instead of enjoying a nice Christmas roast goose, he instead found himself and three uniformed officers, the county coroner, an assistant DA, as well as a potential murderer, Jerry Davies, staring into a snowbank near a ski mountain. Near a grove of maple trees, a bare arm jutted out from the snow. The elbow was bent, the hand coiled in an invisible grip. The law enforcement officers looked at one another in something between bald horror and the relief of not having to spend the rest of their Christmas searching for a corpse that maybe didn't exist if this guy was not on the level. They braced themselves against the 41 below with wind-chilled weather and trudged forward to unearth this poor soul and hopefully bring his killer to justice. So Andy, a classic Christmas tale, this is not. There will be no ghost of Christmas past, present, or future, no redemption arc, and no roasty-toasty Christmas goose. I forgot that Christmas goose was a thing. (laughs) <laughs> and as it came up last night, my sister-in-law was talking about how her family always had Christmas goose. Maybe it's because we raised beef cows, or I don't know what you call them, beef stock, beef cows. I guess it's cows, even though I think we killed mostly bulls. My dad always had like a rib roast, and he always made a demi-glaze. Like still, when I hear Nat King Cole, I just smell like butter and beef stock. <laughs> We had a Christmas ham when I was little. That was like the Midwest thing. We did ham for Easter. And then my mom's family, which is from Maine, always did oyster stew on Christmas Eve. Oh, my God. (laughs) We had a really fun hearing from you guys about what your not a rich person, but rich person rooms in your house were. So I would definitely love it if you want to spam us with your family's maybe bizarre or maybe totally normal Christmas meal selections. Spam. Get it? <laughs> oh, if you definitely let us know if your family's Christmas traditions included spam. <laughs> Today's episode features a killer as cold as the body that is resting naked in a snowbank on a freezing Christmas morning in 1977. There will be drugs, sex, manipulation, 
unrequited love, and a whole lot of mystery with one aloof, brilliant, and beautiful woman at the chewy Tootsie Roll Pop center of it all. Yeah, this one is a twisted one. I found this book on thrift books. I had never heard of this case. I don't think it's been widely covered, which is surprising to me because it's a really insane case. I know that's your favorite too. It's my favorite when I unearth through a used book, some wild story from yesteryear. And the book was really well written. It was called Winter of Frozen Dreams by Carl Harder, which, yeah, it's a pretty title. And like I said, it is the first of two episodes that will take place during the Christmas season. So come on back next week for another holiday homicide. But first, let's go back to trembling Jerry Davies and figure out if he's a killer or just another victim caught in a web of deceit. Gerald Davies was the last of four siblings born to a single mother and deadbeat dad who split pretty soon after Jerry was born. His mother, Ruth, raised the children in Spring Green, a rural community about 45 miles west of Madison, Wisconsin. He was a quiet kid who seemingly did not leave a large footprint. One by one, his siblings left the house and Jerry was left rattling around the home with his mother. He did attend the University of Wisconsin-Madison for three semesters, but school was not for him, and he eventually dropped out to work at the Goodyear Tire Center. In 1968, he was hired by U of Wisconsin's Department of Audiovisual Instruction, which was a good fit. And at that point, he got his own apartment. He moved out. He was living independently. And the position was not super well paid, as he made less than $10,000 a year, which was closer to 40 grand, I think, in today's money. So that's a good living. It's a good living. Especially in Wisconsin. He felt comfortable in his role. And that was really the predominantly important thing to him, is that he felt like he could do a good job. He kind of flew under the radar. That was it for him. And he was an exceptionally shy guy who didn't really have a ton of friends. He had a couple childhood friends. He didn't have very, very super close relationships. His mother, Ruth, was probably the person closest to him in the world, but they also had their ups and downs, as mothers and kids do, especially if they're exceptionally close. So Jerry longed for female company, and he very, very much did want to have a companion and get married someday, but he had an extremely difficult time approaching women. At nearly 30 years old in 1974, he had yet to kiss a woman, let alone make love to one. I mean, I guess if you're not, like, looking for a companion, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Like, some people are just asexual or they don't want, need Oh, absolutely. Or, or aromantic. Whatever, but yeah. Aromantic, yeah. But if you are actually looking for a partner, that has to be really hard. It is. I think that, obviously, this is the 70s, but I think he had a lot of social anxiety, so he wasn't diagnosed, clearly. But he had a lot of social anxiety, and I think it was really revved up when it came to the opposite sex who he was very much interested in. But didn't know what to do or how to do it. Exactly. And I think he wanted physical intimacy. He wanted emotional intimacy. But it was just, it was a hard thing to overcome. And this is, I think it's a lot easier, honestly. Like, I think dating online can be a cesspool, but you're able to connect with like-minded individuals. You can message people for however long you want until you meet up and get a sense of who they are, which eases the transition. Back in the day, you had to just approach somebody in a bar. 
Yeah, that's not easy for everyone at all. Or get it introduced, but it didn't sound like he had a ton of very close friends. So if you don't have a huge peer group, then it would be also hard to get a setup. So I think he was struggling in that field. But, you know, for everyone, it still continues to this day. You don't necessarily need to be in a relationship to find sexual intimacy or release. Especially if you are willing to turn to the sex industry, which was kind of booming in Madison in the mid-70s. There was an adult bookstore. There were porn theaters. There was a nude photography studio, as well as a handful of full-service massage parlors. So it took Jerry days of contemplation weighing what he wanted to do, if this was worth it for him, and then a six-pack of beer to finally step into one of these establishments to get his strength up to go forward with it. Yeah, I mean, drinking will help. It'll, you'll lose your inhibition, so <laughs> yeah, it'll just exactly. send, you, send you right on in. Well, it might not help the release for a guy, but it'll help, it'll help you, you get in the door. Get in the door, yeah. So the one that he picked was a CD spot called Jan's Health Club, contrary to its name. Jan's was no run-of-the-mill gym or place to get a nice spa treatment, though I'm sure you could get a facial of another type. Literally what I was thinking. (laughs) I knew it. I just read your brain. (laughs) It was a straight-up bordello. According to author Carl Harder, you could get a massage, like just a straight massage. You could get sex of any variety. You could watch a couple women getting it on. You could get domped. Or you could even score a little dope or buy a small caliber weapon. Uh, I'm good with everything except that last part. <laughs> it is your does oh. not seem that should like cross one that should not shop, be serviced baby. in the same area. Yeah, you're doing a little Christmas shopping. You get something for your friends. You get something for yourself. Treat yourself all in one. All in one. Every grandma needs a small caliber weapon in her Christmas stocking. You can just get that after you get your facial. <laughs> It was there on his third visit that Jerry met beautiful Barbara Hoffman. Barbara was very different from the other girls he had met at Jan. So it was his third time. So he had been with two other women previously. But Barbara immediately stood out. There was no come hither sexy attitude. She didn't pretend to be like overly interested or overly sex kittenish. She was just really straightforward. She was pretty. She was in her mid-20s. She seemed emotionally connected and she did not lead with some sort of calculated coyness. She seemed more authentic. The first time he was with Barbara for his purchased 30 minutes, it was a revelation. Unfortunately for Jerry, it turned out that other men had had the similar discovery. And when he requested her, he sometimes had to wait upwards of an hour or more to get ushered into a room because she was so popular. Whoa, Barbara is busy. I think they called her the queen of the massage parlors. She was a number one girl. But it was worth it to Jerry. And the frequency of his visits increased until he became quite a regular. And sex was actually the least important part of their time together. Instead, Barbara would engage him in conversation while like gently touching him. There was like this emotional and yes, physical intimacy, but it was more about feeling seen, feeling heard, being like stroked, but not necessarily in the way you'd think at a massage parlor. 
and being touched. I mean, physical touch is such an important part of our life, just like getting hugs and being around people. And it's something that people don't realize when they don't have families or have partners or even have friends that they can give a hug to or be close to in that way that we as humans need it. And it felt like most of the time, I don't even think they had sex. I think that there was just this feeling of companionship that he had so desired. I mean, there's bars in other countries that I've been to where like there's girl clubs and there's like no touching. It's just talking and connecting. Yeah. And then there's also there's people who also advertise like just cuddling or just hugging. So when Barbara suggested that they take the relationship outside of the massage parlor, he was already so in love with her that he jumped at the chance. No matter the fact that their dating life was highly irregular and with Barbara calling every shot, obviously. Yeah. Apparently, they didn't really have any sort of sex after she left the massage parlor, interestingly. Huh. Yeah, she said that she was in therapy, though, because she was having some issues performing when she wasn't at work. Barbara was a standout at Jan's for many reasons, one of which was her undisputed intellect. Barbara's IQ was 145, and she had scored in the 98th percentile on her college entrance exams. In high school, she was one smart cookie for real. Yeah. In high school, she had been in the National Honor Society as well as a finalist for the National Merit Scholarship. Wow, that's really impressive. There's a lot of people that I feel like were like, wow, you know, comparatively, they did X, Y, and Z. She was like objectively very successful, very academically successful, that is. She was trilingual, completely fluent in French and German, as well as obviously her native English. She played the French horn. She was, in short, brilliant and seemingly had a bright future ahead of her. So what happened that she ended up at Jan's? After graduating high school in 1970, Barbara attended Butler University on a full tuition scholarship. She made dean's list, she got straight A's, and she joined a sorority. Barbara eventually transferred to University of Wisconsin, where for two years she was a quiet student with an outstanding academic record. Her major was biochemistry, and she was crushing a 3.9 GPA and looking forward to medical school or even maybe a research position when everything changed for her. In November of 1974, only 12 credits shy from graduating with a Bachelor of Science, which I believe at least when I went to school, it was one semester, Barbara became a college dropout seemingly out of the blue. We still do not know exactly what ruptured in Barbara's life. What? We have no idea. Nothing like there's no family issue. There was no boyfriend issue. The only thing that we can tie it to is that around the time she dropped out, she had started working at Jan's. That's it. Now, she did use quaaludes when she was at Jan's. People said that she was fond of quaaludes and wine. But, I mean, there was no heroin. There was no cocaine addiction. Nobody knows why she went from a promising, potentially medical student with a near-perfect GPA to working at a massage parlor overnight. Whoa, that is trippy. It's very trippy. And there was a couple of times she tried to go back to school, but every single time she ended up dropping out of the course until finally they said, you can't come back anymore. You keep starting classes and leaving. Jerry became a regular in 1974 and encouraged her to consider getting a straight job and maybe going back to school part-time, which she actually did in 1976. I think she started taking another course 
Barbara took a clerical position at EDS Federal, a firm that processed medical insurance claims, and she ended up dipping her toe back in the water, I think just attending one class at that time. While Jerry wanted a conventional relationship and maybe marriage someday, like I said, it was Barbara who called the shots. The result was a sexless state of affairs and a limit on the number of dates that Barbara allowed each week. You know, I've heard that with women who are in the sex working industry that when it comes to relationships outside of their job that they like don't even want to have sex because it's just it's what you're doing at work. Yeah. And Jerry was very understanding. So he was fine with this arrangement. He really wanted her to work on herself. She told him she was too fragile emotionally to engage in any type of physical relationship. And that was fine with him. He was okay with her healing herself. She was technically not working for Jans anymore, but she was recovering from that type of work. And so he was like, that's fine. I think that the greater problem for him was that she would say that he could only take her out or come over like once every two weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was more of a problem in their relationship is that he wanted to continue that emotional intimacy and that was being denied to him. So he was having a hard time, but he was also so in love with Barbara, who's the only woman he had ever kissed or made love to, that he was willing to be patient with her if that's what it took. And at the same time, even though they weren't getting a lot of quality romantic time together, he was driving her to school and to work because she didn't have a job. So he was still seeing her, but he was like more her chauffeur than her boyfriend. Escorting her around. Yeah. 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 Well, so it'll probably come to no surprise to you that Jerry found himself in the dead man pickle because of his so-called now fiance, at some point they talked about marriage, Ms. Barbara Hoffman. So she is at the center of all of this. A broken Jerry told the police that on December 23rd, Barbara surprised him by inviting him over around 10.30 p.m. at night, even though she had previously told him that she was not going to be able to see him until after Christmas. So they had talked about getting together for the holidays. She said, no, I'm going home. I'm too busy before I go home. See you after the holidays. And then at some point on December 23rd at night, she's like, actually, do you want to end up coming over? So they drank screwdrivers and they watched Johnny Carson by candlelight eventually dozing off. Now, Barbara's in his arms and this was exactly the life he dreamed of. It's Christmas time. There's candlelight. They're watching TV together. It's so normal, happy, what you think of when you're having a cuddly night with your significant other. No pressure, sweatpants, easy peasy. And he was completely happy. He eventually dozed off as well. But this fantasy came crashing down when she woke him up at 2.30 in the morning, which is now very early Christmas Eve, and she told him that she needed to talk about something serious. Barbara claimed that when she came home from work the previous day before calling Jerry, she had discovered a bloody and beaten dead body in her bathroom. So she's um, just now telling him this. And did she know who it was? She said she did not. She said, I had no idea who the guy was. I know it was a guy. I have no idea who he is. However, I believe that it has something to do with my previous job 
at the massage parlor. The guys who owned it were into some sketchy shit. They weren't happy when I was leaving. They thought maybe I was taking some customers. So maybe they did something to try to set me up. Maybe that's what happened. And he's like, uh, where is the body and why didn't you call the police? Yeah, we just spent a whole night together, like, cuddling and had ample time to talk about anything. Yeah, so he is completely mystified at this point. He's confused. He just woke up at 2.30 in the morning after having a nice night with her. And she says, well, I panicked and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't think that the police would believe me anyway. So I decided to just get rid of the body. So I ended up putting it on a sheet and I dragged it down the stairs in the middle of the night last night. And I hid it in a snowbank near a dumpster behind my house. Um, you dragged a body on a sheet down the stairs. Yep. Jerry, Jerry, my love. My love. Jerry, my fiance, guy I'm going to marry, even though I don't sleep with you and we never see each other. I'm going to need you to get your Chevrolet, pull it to the back, and let's take this corpse somewhere else because obviously it can't stay behind my building. Um, this is all I'm asking for Christmas, baby. All I all want, I for, want Christmas for Christmas is for you to pull your truck around and put a body in it and then we'll bury it somewhere else. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ooh, yeah, I, don't, I can't believe Mariah Carey didn't sing this version. So, yeah, Jerry is like, you didn't know this person. This is not on you. Let's please, 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 let's call the police. Let's get the police on the line. You did nothing wrong. You are a victim in this. Like, we cannot continue to do illegal things or we are going to look really bad if it's ever discovered. And she refused to back down. She was like, absolutely not. I worked in the sex trade. They're not going to believe me. You have to do this for me. Do it for me. Do it for me. Do it for me. And he finally was like, okay, I love you. All right. And so he was really freaked out. It took her 90 minutes to convince him to do this. But at four in the morning, Whoa. 90 minutes of them having this conversation, her telling him what happened, him trying to figure out what's going on, him trying to push back. I mean, that's a long time, but it's not a long time no. to convince someone to <laughs> be an accomplice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So he pulled the Chevrolet around to the back of Barbara's apartment. Now, this was a, like, a sedan Chevrolet. And the corpse was now completely frozen stiff and it was still wrapped in the sheet and they ended up putting a seat down like the front seat down like loading him in the back and Barbara had to sit in the back seat next to the corpse well they both had to sit next to the corpse if he was driving yeah if it like they're both yeah sitting next to the corpse and basically, she gave him instructions about where to go. Obviously, everything's frozen. Yeah, she's sounding shady. Oh, she's shady as hell. And everything is frozen. I mean, you can't put them in a body of water. You're definitely not burying anyone at this point. No. And so she ended up giving him instructions to a ski slope that was right outside of town. And they found a giant, giant snowbank there because obviously the plows had pushed all of the snow to a certain area in this parking area. So they ended up just burying him in a bigger snowbank that was outside of town, which it seems like a very, very poor strategy. Come on. Given the snow melts, which is another little snow factoid you guys might not know. <laughs> snow melts? 
Word up to you and Olaf. Snow melts. I was literally just watching Olaf's Frozen Adventure with my children. It's very cute, guys. If you want a little, a little seasonal joy with a side of the Frozen characters for you and your small children. So this seems like a very, very poor plan, but I'm assuming if Barbara is telling the truth and she does not know this person, that she is betting on the fact that she's not going to get connected to this body. So when everything thaws in the spring, maybe they'll just be like, this is a mystery person and not get connected to her somehow. Because I can't think of any other reason that this would be a good idea in a public place. So afterwards, they split up. They both ended up driving to their respective families' homes for Christmas. Jerry to Spring Green to be with his mother, and I think one of his siblings in his family came home. And Barbara drove to Park Ridge, Illinois, which is a suburb outside of Chicago. As his family celebrated, the guilt, fear, and anxiety ate away at Jerry. He could not sleep. He could not eat. He could not focus. On Christmas morning, he told his mother that he needed to run an errand, which is when he went to the police and he confessed, which was our opening. Oh, my God, this poor guy. He was being totally honest with them. He had no idea who this guy was. And Barbara had told him that she didn't know either. So he had no inkling to what was going on. Now, the police thought, obviously, that the story was strange, but he seemed truly disturbed. And detectives actually did believe him. Because he seemed quite upset. He seemed truthful. He was willing to take a lie detector test. He's like, I'm telling you literally all I know about this situation. So they asked him a million questions, obviously, about his relationship with Barbara. And they realized very quickly that it seemed likely that there was a lot Jerry did not know about his so-called fiancé. But Barbara was another story altogether because they believed, obviously, that she did know who this man was that was dead, obviously, in her apartment and then behind her apartment. So they ended up getting a search warrant for Barbara's apartment and they set out to figure out who the man in the snowbank was and how he had died. Well, the answer to the first part came in the form of a missing persons report issued by a worried sister whose 52-year-old bachelor brother, Harry Burgey, had not returned home for the holiday for the first time in over 15 years. Oh. This is very sad. She and her husband had driven to Harry's house where they found two days' worth of uncollected newspapers and mail on the porch and no one home. Detective Lulling contacted the poor woman and her husband came down to the morgue in Madison and made a positive identification on Christmas. His brother-in-law said that Harry was a loner. He had grown up on a farm in rural Wisconsin, the youngest of two children raised by Norwegian Lutheran parents. After Harry graduated high school in 1943, he elected to stay on the farm and help his parents. Unfortunately, money was tight, and eventually the family was forced to sell the farm when Harry was 41. They ended up buying a house in town, and Harry got a job as a forklift operator at a tire plant. By the time he was 46 years old, both parents had passed away, leaving Harry alone for the very first time in his life. His older sister, now the only surviving member of the Bergey family, had married young and she had moved out early, but Harry had never even dated. And this actually goes more to the point 
of what you were saying earlier with Jerry, actually, is that he seemed to his family asexual, aromantic, happy with his life. That both his sister and his brother-in-law thought he was a great guy who just wasn't looking for a relationship. He was content living with his parents, working on the farm until that shut down. And that was pretty devastating to him when he had to leave the farm and he had to get a different job. He liked life on the homestead. He collected train sets in his basement. He had a bunch of like kids train sets all over the place. He also visited a farm family who had been the old homestead's neighbors. And he was like an uncle to their kids. He came every week. His sister visited also once a week to help him with his laundry and around his house and to visit with him. It was a solitary existence. But in August of 1977, Harry had surprised his old neighbor friends, the ones that were the farm neighbor friends, by hinting that he had met a younger woman who was a student at the U of Wisconsin and that she was his girlfriend. So they were surprised he had never mentioned a girlfriend before. At work, he had equally surprised coworkers when they were talking about massage parlors and kind of making jokes about them. And he like casually laid down that he visited them sometimes. And everyone was really surprised because he didn't seem super duper religious or anything, but he had seemed like straight laced, pretty conservative, quiet. He was not some wild and crazy guy who he like, barely drank, maybe a few beers here and there. But like this seemed very out of character. So when the police searched his home, they found out that indeed he was a regular at a couple massage parlors in Madison. They found a shoebox full of receipts from various establishments. And the majority of the receipts were from Jan's during Barbara's time of employment. So not so hard to put the pieces together here, what the connective tissue is. No, it's shocking that she didn't know him if he visited so often. Exactly. As to what had happened to Harry, an initial autopsy showed that he had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. It appeared that a minimum of four blows had been administered to his skull. It also appeared that somebody had battered his genitals. So it looked like his genitals had been damaged in some capacity. They looked bruised and beaten. That's new. That's a new little factoid. They actually, when they were uncovering the body from the snow, the guys are on Christmas morning, which, by the way, I guess some of the uniformed officers had already been like hitting the eggnog in the morning because by the time they were called out was the afternoon. So it was like a bunch of guys who were kind of drunk slash maybe hung over because they'd been really enjoying their Christmas. And now they're looking at a nude dead body frozen in the snow. Beaten. Beaten around the dick and scrotum. They were like, oh, fuck, no, no, oh. This is not a Christmas treat for anyone, especially poor Harry Bergey. He also had some small post-mortem scratches and bruises that would have been consistent with being dragged down a staircase after death. The medical examiner also discovered an advanced carcinoma in his right kidney. Based on Harry's medical records, it seemed like he did not know, nor did his doctors know, that he had cancer. And though it was definitely not his cause of death, they believe that 
had Harry lived, he may have died of cancer within the year if it had continued to be untreated. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Well, forensic techs combed through Barbara's apartment, veteran detective Chuck Lulling and rookie Ken Culture made the visit to Barbara's parents' home in Park Ridge. Unfortunately, no physical evidence had turned up in her apartment. No blood, no murder weapon, nothing tying her to Harry at all. But they did have Jerry's confession and obviously the connection between Harry and Jan's. So they were placing a pretty steep bet on her folding. They thought, hey, we got your boyfriend. He spilled all. We know that you had something to do with this. And we know that Harry was a regular of yours, was going to be enough to elicit a confession. But, like, there's no blood anywhere in her apartment. That's insane. But she doesn't know that. I don't think that they lied to her, but she doesn't know what they have. So they placed a big bet on we are going to be able to force a confession out of her because she doesn't know what we know. And we're going to overstate what we do know. But it did not work for Barbara. She was steel willed apparently she didn't even flinch she did not react she just stared at them coldly and as they presented their case against her the only thing she said to them was fuck you and then i want an oh, attorney she's getting spicy she's spicy she said fuck you i'm getting an attorney i'm done speaking with you leave and they couldn't do anything she's like i'm going home to madison now and i'm going to talk to an attorney so bye so veteran detective chuck lulling who by the way was only weeks away from retiring was like shit <laughs> definitely thought that was gonna go differently wow that is like bold it is ballsy as hell and then she called her attorney who happened to be another regular from jams and that did not end up being her criminal attorney he referred her to an actual criminal defense attorney but i don't know i think he did also like, conflict of interest <laughs> hey if you've slapped your attorney's knob i think it's a conflict of interest yeah. <laughs> so they're kind of in a pickle here because all they had was Jerry's word. And Barbara, by the way, was already weaseling her way back into his heart and into his life with this potent combination of anger, sexuality, love. She's guilting him. And then eventually she's like, oh, well, I just love you so much that I guess I'll just forgive you. But let's just stick together, okay? And there's nothing they can do. They can't tell their witness to stay away from her. But they've just got him and he is getting corrupted. So they tried to get him to wear a wire and have a conversation with her. And he refused to wear a wire. He says, I'm not doing it. I'm not. So they're like, OK, fine. But in order for you not to get charged with something, because you clearly did something, you admitted to it, you're going to have to help us a little bit. You're going to have to give us something, bud. So we're going to set up a meeting with you guys. and. You won't wear a wire, but we're going to position undercover cops around you in this bar. So you meet up in a crowded place with noise so she feels secure. And we will position undercover cops around you in this bar so they can overhear your conversation if you won't wear a wire. Now, unfortunately, whether Barbara was just doing this to manipulate Jerry or whether she had some suspicion that people might be listening... She cuddled right up to him and just whispered into his ear. So, of course, they can't hear anything else. There's live music. It's, it was a college bar. They're missing everything. They said the only thing they could hear was one time she said, well, if you love me, Jerry. Uh-oh. 
Through body language, they could tell that Barbara was a manipulative genius. It took mere minutes to have Jerry eating out of the palm of her hand, his crisis of conscience of the last couple days clearly behind him. She ended up just, they watched her kind of like be like fake mad at him, then draw him in and then like cry a little and then kiss him and then like basically go through this whole range of motions and then like come to an agreement where it looks like she was like, it's okay, I forgive you. They like watched this and it was like a master course in bringing him back to her side. Those nails are in deep. Oh, yeah. And so then he ended up walking her back to her house and they were tailing him. And she just like ran her hands along the side of his face before going into her apartment. And when he left, they caught up with him. And they're like, okay, so tell us everything. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not going to tell you what she said. The only thing I'm going to tell you is that tell the DA that our engagement's still on and we're probably going to get married in the spring. Oh, and Barbara says we should stick together. They're like, oh, great. So, yeah, they're like not in a good way. They're not in a good way. They've got this dead man who she clearly killed and the witness that, thank goodness, had come forward out of his own moral compass is now being twisted into knots by the only woman he's ever touched, ever loved, ever thought he had a future with. So clearly he's going to be less than helpful to the police. So they rush to do some police work and get to the bottom of Barbara's relationship with Harry Burgey because they can't count on just Jerry now. According to coworkers at Jan's, the ill-suited pair had met, this is Harry and Barbara, in 1975 when Harry had made a request that one of the girls refused to honor. She had been a little disgusted by this request. He had wanted her to whip him across the back with an electrical cord that he had brought from home. And that was not her flavor. So she came out and she's like, I don't do freaky shit. And Barbara's little ears went up and she was like, well, what does he want you to do? And when she explained, Barbara was like, I'll do it. And so she got in there and apparently she beat the shit out of him, managing to break his skin in several areas. Yeah, I think an electrical cord would do that. Yikes on a bike. So Harry became one of Barbara's regulars after that, eventually, like Jerry, moving the relationship outside of the massage parlor. There's a lot of similarities between Jerry and Harry, even though Harry was 20 years older than Jerry. They were both longtime bachelors whose only experience with women had been paid for. They were both very solitary and they were both looking for companionship, if not love. They both were comfortable at home for a long time with their parents. Long time living with their parents. They were both sheltered, so somewhat naive. And another thing that they had in common, they both had term life insurance policies that Barbara was the beneficiary of. I thought you were going to say that their names rhymed. <laughs> I mean, there's also that. Got a real Sesame Street, like, murder situation going on here. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit to get back to the search of Barbara's apartment. While they had not found physical evidence of a crime, they had discovered a pile of dildos and vibrators a shoebox full of photos of Barbara making love to different women, 
a bookshelf full of books on aberrant sexual behavior, as well as microbiology, chemistry, and a couple other books on poisons and toxic substances. They also uncovered paperwork and a bank account, like a checkbook that belonged to a bank account, belonging to a Ms. Linda Millar. Well, guess who Harry had willed his house to, as well as made beneficiary of his $35,000 life insurance policy? Ms. Linda Millar. The ironic thing about this is that, so she had used this fake name, obviously, is that if she had not killed him, because of the cancer, she would have likely gotten all of these benefits naturally within a year. Yeah. Someone was a little impatient. This is, that's, this is the tale as old as time. It's like the, the tortoise and the hare. <laughs> Don't kill your boyfriend who's not your real boyfriend for his house and insurance money when you don't know. Gifting is hard. Bombas makes it easy with socks, underwear, and t-shirts that feel good and do good. They feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials. And they do good because for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone in need. Andy, Bombas really does solve all of my gift-giving needs. Even my pickiest friends and relatives cannot deny how soft and comfy Bombas products are. And everyone loves the fact that this is a company that truly gives back. Bombas socks, underwear, t-shirts, and slippers are cozy upgrades to everyday basics and the perfect gift for everyone on your list, including yourself. At Thanksgiving, I talked to your dad and stepmom all about how much they love Bombas. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> they really do. Bombas uses materials like premium Pima cotton and ultra soft, never itchy merino wool in their socks and t-shirts and fuzzy Sherpa linings in their slippers. My fave. Bombas Holiday Collection puts a modern twist on traditional festive colors and designs. Think rich purples and greens, geometric snowflake designs, sweater-inspired textures, and retro ski patterns. With family sets, you can match with your family and friends in exceptional comfort and style. The only bad thing about Bombas is that every time I go to buy something for somebody else, I end up buying like 10 more pairs of socks and slippers for myself. <laughs> And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items in homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one item for every you buy. So far, Bombas has donated over 75 million items of clothing. That's a whole lot of comfort and a whole lot of good. Give the good this holiday season with Bombas. Go to bombas.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash lovemurder, code lovemurder for 20% off. Bombas dot com slash lovemurder, code lovemurder. Got a killer business idea? Make it a reality with Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling hand-knitted holiday scarves or vintage finds from around the globe, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all of the sales channels to successfully grow your business. From an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, 
Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can too. Jesse, you know I am a passionate Shopify user. I still remember when I got the store up and running and actually started to see sales. That feeling was so exciting and empowering. It's something I'd love for other people to have the chance to experience as well. I love it when you're with me and you get a Ririku sale and it just goes bing, ching. It's like, yes. <laughs> I know. It's, it really is like such a fun and exciting, especially with what we sell. It's so like interesting to see what people are going to pick. And it's just, I think for everyone who has their own Shopify, seeing what you are putting out there and who is coming to it. It's so fun seeing what they like, seeing what they find, figuring out what you can do better on Shopify to make the shopping experience more successful and enjoyable for your shopper. I mean, there's so many opportunities online. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. And now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. Looking for a really cool gift to impress your parents, grandparents, or loved ones? A really fun, heartwarming choice comes from the sponsor of today's episode, mylifeinabook.com. They offer a great way to get to know your loved ones better, collect timeless memories for future generations, and bring your family together. It's simple. You select from a series of fun and exciting questions that you wouldn't think to ask, such as, what's the funniest memory that you have of your siblings? Or, do you have a secret you've never told your own parents? And then it gets emailed to them, and they write an answer, and can even attach a meaningful photo. This happens every week. At the end of one year, they all get compiled and printed in a beautiful keepsake book. And you can get copies for all of your family members if you want. And to make sure that you preserve it digitally in case anything happens to the physical copies, you can also get it in audio format. It's really, really sweet, sweet product, especially now that we're going into Christmas. Sometimes these family memories get lost and we don't realize it. Yeah, I think it's also a gift that you can get someone who maybe already has everything that they could want in a tangible world. This is such a thoughtful and meaningful item that embodies memories of their childhood or adolescence or marriage. I think it is really special. Totally priceless. With mylifeinabook.com, you can show your loved ones that they are meaningful to the family and help build their legacy. I've tried it with my grandmother and she totally loved it. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code Love Murder. That's Love Murder to get $10 off on mylifeinabook.com. Hey everyone, my name is Jess, and I'm the co-host of a weekly true crime podcast called Wife of Crime. Every week, I tell my husband one of my favorite true crime stories, and he reacts to them. Sometimes, I get mad at him. You're going to really regret all of this judginess that you're doing right now once I tell you this story, because you're being very judgmental. Obviously, something bad's going to happen. She's making a lot of bad decisions. Well, you're being very judgmental. Stop. And sometimes he makes really weird noises. Oh. He now thinks that he's an FBI profiler. Yeah. How about no. that? Rust a profile of oh. placebo effect. <laughs> but most of the time, he just has really funny color commentary. Wow, so he's sitting in his human leather chair eating fruity pebbles out of a skull. <laughs> 
You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on Instagram at Wife of Crime Pod. So Jerry Davis did confirm that Linda Millar was a name that Barbara began using after leaving the massage parlor. He believed it was so she could get a fresh start after using her real name for sex work. That's what he told the police. He also confirmed that at Barbara's request, he had also taken out a term life insurance policy. So after she agreed to marry him, she said she needed some security for their future. And the pair had shopped around getting rejected from five different life insurance companies before they found one that would insure Jerry. Why was he rejected? Well, it had to do with the fact that Barbara was trying to get Jerry's life insured for $3 million, which, by the way, is the equivalent of nearly $15 million in today's money. And this is a guy who only made nine grand a year. So every insurance company was like, fuck off with that. Are you kidding me? How can he pay for the premiums on a $3 million policy? It doesn't make any sense. That's like a big jump from 30 k to $3 million. So what happened was that Barbara lowered her standards a bit, and they eventually found a sketchy insurance agent who issued a $750,000 term policy with an annual premium of $13,236, which is still more than Jerry makes in a year. Yeah. So it doesn't make any goddamn sense how they even got this. But this guy was super sketchy. He, like, made the deal with them and, like, ran off to Mexico when the heat came after him. (laughs) He's like, I'm just going to go to beat the Wisconsin winters, coincidentally, when the police are asking me questions about why I, I insured this person for so much money. Never works. Never works. So now the authorities are deeply concerned for Jerry Davies. Not only is he the star witness against Barbara and Harry's murder, but he's also worth the equivalent of today's, today's money, $3.6 million if he dies to her. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they're like, she's definitely going to kill him. And they weren't just worried about this, like, benevolently for Jerry. If he's gone, they have absolutely nothing on Barbara. They put a security detail on Jerry, but due to budget cuts, it was only during the day. So Lieutenant Detective Lulling, who, again, like I said, was like only a couple weeks away from retirement. He was like doing things like parking his own car in his off time outside of Jerry's house to monitor him (sighs) and staying there all night in the freezing cold. Well, luckily for Detective Lulling, this did not last very long because the DA decided that Jerry's testimony and the clear financial incentive was enough to arrest Barbara Hoffman for Harry's murder, and they did so on January 18th, 1978. So this is only about three weeks after the murder. The following day, forensic techs once again swept Barbara's apartment, which also included the back area with the dumpster where Jerry had directed that Harry had been before they moved him. And this time, they were able to pick up some trace blood evidence that was a match to Harry. Unfortunately, Barbara made bail. And... She was out, which means she can get after Jerry again. And they are still dating. Jerry refuses to stop seeing Barbara. And he also laughed off any concerns. Detectives were like, dude, you are worth so much more to her dead than alive. Yeah. How do you not see that? She's going to kill you. She's going to get millions of dollars and no one to testify against her at a murder trial. You have to watch yourself. 
And he was like, no, she's my fiance. She loves me. This was all a mistake. Got, no, don't worry about it. So there's nothing that they could do. Now, on the good news side of this was that the policy's premium was due. So if she didn't pay what ended up being close to seven grand, which obviously is a shit ton back in the day, then the policy was going to lapse. And it had a 30-day grace period. But that would be one less incentive for her to kill Jerry. So when it finally did lapse and then the grace period was over because she could not come up with the money, she had just bailed herself out of prison, essentially. And he certainly didn't have the money. So it lapsed and it was over. So they kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Like that's one less incentive down. Although witness at a murder trial is still a pretty good one. Yes. So that doesn't mean that killing him is off the table at this point. Well, on March 27th, 1978, the Monday following Easter Sunday, a crime writer for a local newspaper named Anita Clark received a shocking letter and immediately turned it over to the authorities. The letter was postmarked Saturday, March 25th, and it read, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent, and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with the body at all. She never did. I went crazy. I was so scared. The police scared me. I was crazy, and I didn't know what I was saying. Then I had to keep telling the same story, or they would charge me with a crime. Now they did it to Barb instead, and I don't know what to do anymore except to tell the truth. I'm not crazy anymore, and I'm not scared. I want to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to go to jail. Barb never had anything to do with the body at all. I swear it, and they can do what they want to me. Sincerely, Gerald Thomas Davies. Whoa. She kept him around long enough that he exonerated her. So the cops and the DA are freaking out about this. Obviously. Yeah. And they're like, this is exactly what we feared. If Barbara didn't kill him, then she was going to get to him emotionally to switch his story around. Now, they still had his initial statements on the record, but this was going to be a very steep uphill battle with just a little bit of blood from the back of her apartment and him saying that he did it all, that it was all on him, that he's going to take the fall for her. How are they going to have him be the star witness at the same time he's they're going to say he's lying now? That means that he's not trustworthy. They don't know what to do. I mean, they could try to get him back on their side, but they don't know what to do. And so while they were still reeling from this and reaching, they were like going to go over to Jerry's to try to like talk to him and figure out what was going on. They got another piece of bombshell information. And this one, this one's a real atom bomb. One question before you tell me the next bombshell. Did they have any inclination that like what he was writing could have been true or did they think it was just completely false from the get go? Like, could he have actually gone crazy? And they did not believe so. I mean, there's always a chance, but this had to be more of a gut instinct thing. But this, the way he behaved, how scared he was, how guilt ridden he absolutely was. He seemed like he was being completely forthright and honest versus Barbara, who was defensive, who was cold, who was shutting down the entire conversation, who, in their opinion, 
was manipulating Jerry and had obviously had a relationship with Harry, they really did believe it was all her. No, I mean, I think you can look at it like a defense attorney would and say, absolutely, it's this guy. It's absolutely Jerry. He found out that Barbara had another boyfriend and he, let's say he jumped him outside of her apartment. That's why the blood was outside of her apartment. Barbara never knew. There's no blood inside the apartment. He left. Jerry was standing out there waiting to kill him. He killed him. He did it. He was so mad that he set Barbara up for the whole thing because she spurned him. That's a very easy narrative to tell if you're a defense attorney for Barbara. Absolutely. Especially if Jerry's now saying that it was all him. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. He like pitched the perfect pitch to the defense attorney. 100%. So they very firmly believed it was Barbara and Jerry was being manipulated, which is what I believe as well. But I mean, this is an easy acquittal, I think, from a narrative perspective. However, the big news was that Jerry was not a problem anymore. The absence of Jerry was going to be a huge problem because on the same day, Monday, March 27th, 1978, that Anita Clark received that letter, Gerald Jerry Davies was found dead in his bathtub in his apartment. The tenant who lived above Jerry had been annoyed by the sound of a running, noisy bathroom fan. He complained to the building maintenance man who entered the apartment at 3.20 p.m. and discovered Jerry's body nude in the bathtub. There was no sign of foul play, and Jerry appeared to be resting peacefully in the tub. There were no marks, no bruises, no cuts on his body. There were dry towels and bath slippers laying on the side of the tub, as well as a bottle of Valium prescribed to Jerry. There was no obvious cause of death by looking at him. An autopsy was performed early the next morning, and the only obvious trauma was to his lungs. It was clear that he had drowned. Given the Valium at the tub side, one prominent theory was that maybe he had either taken too much, either intentionally or non-intentionally, and then slipped into a sleep and accidentally drowned or committed suicide. We don't know. I guess because the body had been in the bath for nearly 48 hours, they believed the time of death had occurred between 5 and 7 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th, the same day he had written and sent the letters exonerating Barbara. So he wrote those letters, came home, took a nice bath, and never woke up. But because he had been in the bath for 48 hours, they thought at that point any chemical that he had ingested would have broken down and been absorbed in his system by then, and so they could not detect it. So they looked for puncture wounds, and they couldn't find any, but it could have been the Valium. Without knowing what it was, they had to just say that his cause of death was accidental drowning. There's a lot of questions here, obviously. If Jerry had indeed killed himself, did he do it because he felt guilty for implicating Barbara and he wrote those letters and then killed himself out of penance? I mean, that would have been a gift to her because he wrote the letters and then he took away the state's key witness, which is himself. 
Also, rather than perjuring himself on the stand. Or, like you said, was there a possibility he actually did kill Harry? In which case, maybe he also killed himself out of guilt for taking another human life. Detective Lulling did not believe that it was actually a suicide at all or an intentional on Jerry's part. He had already paid his rent for the next month. He had made plans. He had written in that letter that he wasn't afraid to go to prison. He was planning on it. He also had clearly intended to step out of the tub if he placed slippers and dry towels next to the tub. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it was weird to him, too, because remember that Jerry was very close to his mother. So why not also, if he's sending letters, send her a suicide note? Why not leave it for anyone else he cared about? And there was no note to Barbara. There was no note to his siblings. Why just the letter to two different reporters? Well, Chuck Lawling's suspicion deepened when police discovered that while Barbara would not be getting the $750,000 due to the policy lapsing, she was going to be cashing in on three small policies, totaling up to twenty grand, but thirty-five grand if Jerry's death was determined to be accidental, which accidental drowning is accidental, until one month earlier. The beneficiary had been listed as Jerry's mother, and then boom, 30 days before his tragic accidental death, it's Barbara. So she has him write these letters that exonerate her, and then Chuck Lulling thinks she managed to somehow bump him off. She gets to collect anywhere from 20 to 35K, no witness for her upcoming trial, which means if she is not implicated or convicted in Harry's murder, she gets his property as well. What a lucky accident for Barbara. The authorities were, of course, not going to let this go unexamined, so they brought in a toxicologist from the state crime lab to re-examine Jerry's body. As the toxicologist was performing the new autopsy, he noticed an odd and strangely familiar odor emanating from Jerry's body. It was the smell of burnt, bitter almonds. No. Ah, which if you have listened to other podcasts of ours or actually any true crime podcast, probably it indicates cyanide poisoning. Yep. When Jerry was tested specifically for cyanide, he was determined to have twice the lethal dose in his system. Apparently, now this is something I didn't know in, what are we at, 129 of episodes. I had no idea this was a thing. Approximately one quarter of the population cannot smell the odor of burnt almonds. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's apparently a minor hereditary defect. So the cyanide nearly went undetected because the first pathologist was one of those quarter of the population people. That is insane. Insane. It's crazy because I think we've done two. One of the episodes was like the book was called Bitter Almonds. Yes, I think that's the Greg Olson. Mm -hmm. It was mentioned in another one, too. And it's crazy that you didn't come up to it until now. I know. Well, apparently those pathologists could actually smell it because I guess the majority, three quarters of the population can. How 
random. That pathologist must have everyone coming into his autopsies afterwards and being like, can you smell for me? Just take a whiff. <laughs> Does anything smell bitter? I kind of think when you're here next, we should burn some almonds and see if we can smell them. Ooh, that's a fun thing. That's a fun thing. Maybe we'll like do a live or something. <laughs> so as soon as Detective Lulling received this stunning news, he asked for the state crime lab to also retest Harry's blood and tissue samples. It was determined that Harry had also died of cyanide poisoning before he was bludgeoned. Well, they kind of happened at the same time, it seemed like. And now with Harry, this was overkill. He had over 37 times the lethal dose in his body. 37 times. 37 times. So Jerry had twice the lethal dose, but Harry had 37 times the lethal dose in his body. She's not getting an A in chemistry on that one. <laughs> this is why she flunked out of biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Well, they continued to build a case against Barbara, one of the part owners of Jan's health club came forward with some very damaging information. In exchange for his partner receiving a lighter sentence on a cocaine charge, this guy, so I believe he might be pseudonymed in the book, but there's a movie about this and the, the names are consistent from this book and the movie. But then in another article, he had a different name. So I'm just going to go with what potentially might be a pseudonym because it doesn't really matter to the story. So they named him Ken Curtis. This guy, Ken Curtis, spilled the beans on his part-time lover and part-time employee, Barbara Hoffman. She was also getting it on with her boss. So it turned out, like I had mentioned, that Barbie's drug of choice was Quaaludes. Which, if you guys don't know about Quaaludes, because they've been off the market for decades, but they are a potent type of barbiturate that causes relaxation, sleepiness, and feelings of euphoria. It was very popular in the 70s and the early 80s, and it was popular to pair quaaludes with wine. In the 70s, they called it Luden Out. Whoa. Yeah, if you lude, I'm going to lude out tonight. It was like taking a quaalude with some wine. <laughs> now I just think of ludicrous. <laughs> but they're also highly addictive, and they can lead to all sorts of health issues, like accidental overdoses and organ failure. Because of all of these myriad terrible side effects, the U.S. actually barred the sale and production of quaaludes in 1984. Well, looting out was Barbara's favorite pastime, and apparently when she imbibed, she got real sexual and real chatty. Ken Curtis claimed that 14 months earlier... He, Barbara, and his roommate had met up at this wild house party where they engaged in a couple of orgies and a whole lot of drugs. So I think him and his roommate were doing coke, but Barbara was doing quaaludes. Now, at some point, Ken went off with somebody else and he left his roommate with Barbara and she started talking. According to Carl Harder's book, Barbara boasted that in a couple of months, she was going to become a rich lady. Everyone else being stoned, her words were assumed to be a fantasy. But Ken's roommate knew that Barbara was kind of interesting and brainy. So he listened because he wanted to see what, what the hell she was going to say here. And what she said was pretty wild, malicious, malevolent, but like in his coke-addled brain, made kind of perfect, devious sense. While working at Jan's, Barbara said, she had met a man who was incredibly naive and inexperienced and who had become infatuated by her charms. 
she cultivated those feelings. They dated for a few months, and she vowed to leave the massage parlor if he would marry her, lending her stability and the prospect of a secure future. When she suggested that they invest in insurance policy to provide a financial foundation to his estate, he had agreed. She insured him for close to a million dollars with herself as the beneficiary. The setup demanded delicate maneuvering, she said, but the rest of the plan was simple. Because of her extensive background in biochemistry, she was familiar with toxic substances and knew how to culture botulinum toxin in her apartment. The chemical supplies were readily available. When the toxin was prepared, she would wed her lover with the huge insurance policy, honeymoon in Mexico, and feed him her homegrown concoction of botulinum. I can't believe she's telling people this at a party. She's just totally ass up wasted now and just running her mouth. She said that she would feed him this toxin and it would be a case that they would assume was food poisoning. Tragic, fatal case of food poisoning in Mexico, which is not super duper uncommon in the 70s. I was going to ask, okay, because like I feel like dying from food poisoning now is like not common. I mean, it's possible. It's totally possible because you could get dehydrated really easily. But I feel like at this point, if you get food poisoning, you're puking for 24 hours and you're making sure that you stay hydrated. For the most part, unless she says she left and she went sightseeing for a day and she came back and he was so dehydrated, he must have died. Something happened. Yeah. I wasn't there. I can't believe it. She said that she didn't think it would be treated with suspicion by the authorities. And then... The body would be returned to Madison and cremated, and Barbara would tearfully collect the insurance bonanza. The thing about a secret plan is that it needs to stay secret, babes. Yeah, and there was apparently a bunch of people in this room enjoying some post-coital orgy drugs. Party favors, yeah. Yeah, so it's a bunch of people, and I don't know if she assumed everyone was as wasted as she was, why she was saying this, but she said that she had already gotten a marriage license and that her fiancé had already received a passport for travel abroad. And she said that in six to eight months, she was going to be a very wealthy woman. The roommate thinks she's crazy. He's like, that's an insane story. There's no way that's true. So he goes home and he tells Ken Curtis about it, who's her boss and occasional lover. And Ken Curtis goes right up to Barbara the next time they're hanging out. And he's like, what are you talking about? Are you really doing this? And at first she did try to say, no, your roommate doesn't know what he's talking about. Absolutely not. But he was at her house and he saw a calendar where she had written, apply for a marriage license, apply for passport. <laughs> and he's like, hey, lady, look, I can see you're really doing this. And so eventually she said, yes, I'm hoping I can confide in you. This is my plan. I am going to free myself and I'll never have to work again if I take care of this business and who cares. And so he asked her where she had gotten the idea from. And apparently Harry and Jerry were not the only guys she was seeing outside of the massage parlor. There was also that lawyer, but there was many more men she was seeing outside of the massage parlor. And one of the guys she was seeing was an insurance executive who I guess, took her out on his boat where they would hook up and then whisper sweet nothings about life insurance fraud to one another. But Ken said also that he believed he knew of at least one guy, but there was probably more, which it turns out there were, that she had blackmailed. 
So she would get men who had families or they were prominent positions, like they're a well-known professor at the University of Wisconsin, to sleep with her. And then she would ask them to co-sign a loan with her. And she would take the money and then default on the loan. And they would be left holding the bag. And if they asked her to pay the money back or, hey, what happened here? She would start calling their house at dinner time when she thought their wife would answer the phone until they were like, oh, screw it. I'll just pay it. So she did this to a lot of guys. I mean, that's better than killing them. I definitely think, too, if she had just left it this, we'd be like, girl, get it. Yeah, they're using you for sex and cheating on their wives. Like, whatever. But murder is a different story, milady. Milady? A lady does not murder. A lady may default on loans. (laughs) Yeah, but not murder. So the police looked into this story and everything checked out. He was completely right. There was a marriage license filed. Barbara had defaulted on quite a few loans with random dude co-signers. And she had also received a passport for herself and for Jerry around the same time frame that they said this conversation had happened. Obviously, this she didn't go through with it. It seems likely that Barbara had abandoned that plan after she realized she had run her mouth in front of a bunch of witnesses, and she had soberly confessed the plan to Ken Curtis. So the police theorized that she had been trying to bump Jerry off, which made more sense if he was worth the equivalent of $3.6 million. And Harry, she's only netting $35,000 in the house. Yeah. So why would she kill Harry and not Jerry? It seems like that she knew that she could not go through this plan anymore now that so many people knew about it. So they theorized at that point she somehow got the cyanide and began to work on plan B. So they wanted to move forward with charging Barbara for the murders of both Harry and Jerry, but they had to get around the previous solo charges for just Harry based on old evidence. So they did something really clever. In a pretrial hearing, the prosecution moved to dismiss the old murder charges, much to Barbara and her attorney's delight. The defense figured that without Jerry, they had nothing and that the prosecution had decided to drop an unwinnable case. They did not yet know about the cyanide evidence. So they are thinking they're winning. They're in the courtroom. They're like, yeah, like, good job, prosecution. You're right. You don't have us. Ha 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 They're smiling, coming out of the courtroom, and they get out of the courtroom, and wham, handcuffs go on Barbara, and she was rearrested this time for both of the murders. The drama was very amusing, but author Carl Harter also expounded on why this was also a smart legal move. He wrote... According to Wisconsin state law, a criminal charge can be refiled if new evidence is found. By dismissing the original complaint, the prosecution avoided an appeal issue. Most importantly, however, the new complaint conjoined the two murders so that both cases could be tried at the same time and before the same jury. Which is good because otherwise they might have to not be able to present evidence about the other murder. Which will make her look less guilty. Which has happened in other cases. Absolutely. This was a very smart tactic on their part. Also, can you imagine her face? (laughs) She thinks she's getting off scot-free. She's going to get all this money. And then she gets out of the courtroom and boom, you had, bitch. So good. The defense tried to separate the trials, but no dice. In the meantime, the detectives kept working to gather every last scrap of evidence And they tried to find out what the cyanide connection was in the nick of time because they had to 
prove that she had bought some cyanide. She had a connection to cyanide. They were maybe thinking she had somehow gotten it out of the lab at U of Wisconsin. So they're looking everywhere. They're going through her finances. They're trying to figure out how they can connect her to the cyanide because it's very important in this situation. So they ended up combing through Jerry's finances, knowing that he was such a patsy for her. They're like, maybe he could have had something to do with buying the poison. And they did find a check written to a company called Labs Inc., L-A-A-B-S, Labs Inc., which turned out to be a chemical supply and equipment company. They called Labs, who confirmed that a woman had called to order lab equipment like beakers, test tubes, and syringes, but also small quantities of sodium cyanide and potassium cyanide. How is this legal? I don't know if it still is. I really don't know anything about it. Like, I'm just going to call Labs and get some cyanide. (laughs) Apparently. Like, what? Well, the woman originally gave Barbara's address, but then called back to change it to Jerry Davies' apartment address. It was sent check on delivery. C-O-D. That's not something you hear very much anymore. Feels like a bygone era thing. So Jerry ended up writing the check, likely believing it was necessary equipment for Barbara's schooling because she was back in the one class and she was studying biochemistry. So in the end, Jerry received and paid for the poison that would ultimately kill him. Barbara's trial began in June of 1980 and was the first in history to be fully televised. The more sordid facts of the case definitely made this one a big deal for the ratings because we're talking massage parlor. Of course, there was more conservatives that had been trying to eradicate the sex industry from Madison. So they're using this as an excuse. Everyone on every side of this was very interested in how this case was going to shake out. And Honestly, everyone loves a female villain, especially a sexy, sultry one that they can imagine given handies. Who also is smart. Is also smart. And there was also that big, how did she come from a nice family, get perfect grades, be national honor society, and then end up a murderess from a massage parlor? It's such a crazy fall from grace story. People were fascinated by it. The prosecution painted Barbara as a brilliant and cold seductress who had a knowledge of biochemistry, a manipulative sexuality, and a hungerous greed for money. I don't even know if hungerous is a word. I don't think it is, but let's roll with it, guys. Let's just go with it. Ken Curtis testified to her confession of the Mexico marriage murder plot. Some of her biochem professors testified that she had been taught about the effects and chemical makeup of cyanide. And the police presented evidence that she had ordered the murder weapon, the cyanide, she had made her doomed lover pay for. They also discussed the various life insurance policies and how she had financially benefited from each death. The defense countered that there was absolutely no physical evidence that Harry Burgey had been in Barbara's apartment before he was found dead, nor was there a shred of physical evidence that she had been in Jerry's apartment when he had passed away. Defense attorney Don Eisenberg suggested that the blood evidence found in the snowbank outside of Barbara's apartment was found somewhere between three to four weeks after the murder, and he believed that it had been planted by the police. He also highlighted the fact that if Barbara had wanted Jerry dead, she would have done it in the window in which she would have received $750,000. Instead, that policy had lapsed. However, the prosecution countered that there was no evidence that Barbara knew that the policy had lapsed. So they were saying maybe she still thought she was going to get this payday. 
The defense's star witnesses were Barbara's parents, who claimed they were with Barbara at the time of both alleged murders. Both, coincidentally, over the holidays. Because one happened over Easter weekend and one happened right before Christmas, which is very odd. Yeah, but also that's the thing with poison. is like you don't need to be there necessarily. Exactly. Her father, Robert, claimed that he had been sleeping on Barbara's couch on the night of December 23rd, the night that Jerry Davies had claimed he had spent with Barbara before she woke up to tell him to hide Harry's body. Both of the Hoffmans claimed to have been celebrating Easter with Barbara at her apartment when Jerry died. The consensus was apparently her mother went first and seemed very believable. But then her father got on the stand and said the same exact thing. And they sounded extremely coached. It sounded like a story. So if it's just that her mother had gone, it might have been believable. But when you put them next to each other, all of a sudden it sounded too eerily the same to be spontaneous. Furthermore, there had been a terrible ice storm over Easter weekend that year, and it had resulted in the entire region getting shut down. At the time, the Hoffmans claimed to be driving to and from Chicago to Madison. O'Hare was closed, as was the interstate and the majority of the gas stations in between. So it seems very unlikely that they would have been out in that type of weather crisis. It's much more likely that this is a set of loving but extremely misguided parents who are lying for their child. Absolutely. Can't fully blame them. If they don't know any better, you know. If she's like, also, if they believe her, if they believe her that Jerry did everything and that she's being railroaded and she's as manipulative as everyone thinks she is, she could very easily manipulate them as well. And between her and her attorney, convince them you're doing this for your kid who still has a promising, bright future. She can go back to school. She can turn her life around, but she's not going to be able to do it if she's in jail. All you got to do is say one thing on the stand. They did very nearly go after the parents for perjury afterwards because they were so convinced that the parents were lying. They decided not to in the end, but it, it was almost a thing. So the defense attempted to put the blame on Jerry Davies. He was the one who had implicated Barbara out of jealousy. He had later exonerated her via letter, and then he killed himself out of guilt the same way he had killed his lover's lover with the poison that he had paid for. Oh, my God. So it's pretty compelling. After 14 hours of deliberation, the jury came to a verdict, and I think the verdict was a little surprising for everyone involved on both sides of this. On the charge of first-degree murder for Jerry Davies, the jury found Barbara not guilty. Good news, on the charge of first-degree murder for Harry, the jury found Barbara guilty. I would have thought it would be flipped. It seems that there was enough reasonable doubt that they believed because maybe Jerry bought the poison, maybe because they believed he could have committed suicide, maybe the Valium, that there was enough reasonable doubt that he might have killed himself. At the July 2nd, 1980 sentencing, Barbara uttered the single comment that she said the entire trial because she did not take the stand in her own defense and is the only thing she has said since about the murders. She said, I did not commit the crime of which I was accused and of which I was convicted. That is all. That is all she has ever said. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Barbara was eligible for parole for the first time in 1991, and it was denied. After that, she withdrew her candidacy for parole. 
She withdrew all applications. She refused to appeal. She never appealed. Even though her attorney said she had good cause to, she simply stayed in prison of her own volition, which is where she remains to this day. She is so fascinating, but I feel like there's this is a pattern because this is similar to her slippery slope out of school into Jan's, too. That she just gives up? Or she, like, falls into another lifestyle and can't go back, like— it's almost like shoots and ladders. It is. It's really interesting. And in the book, which was published in the 90s, so it's not the most recent set of information, they said that at the time she wasn't getting involved in any vocation training, any further education. She didn't seem to be socializing with other inmates. So it was. it's very curious that she decided to stay in that system. She has never, ever, ever spoken to anyone about the murders. She's never made any public statement. She's never agreed to any media interviews. So we have absolutely no idea what really happened. She's 70 years old. We'll do her current mugshot, guys. She has been in prison for more than 40 years, which is more than half of her life. She has spent way more of her life behind bars than she ever did out. She was, I think, about 28 years old when the trial started, and now she's 70. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, there's obviously a million questions that remain about why this happened, specifically Harry. It didn't really make sense if she was planning on this big plan for Jerry, why she would blow it with Harry. And if she had poisoned him already, why did she also beat him so badly that the initial... Yeah, that's weird. It's a really big question. So why not Jerry instead of Harry? Why did she beat Harry as well? Well, the prosecutors came up with their own theory of what happened. And it's wild, but it really does ring true. And this is absolutely fascinating. They posited that after she blew it by getting looted up and chatty, that she had to scrap the Mexico botulism plan. She ordered the cyanide to kill Jerry, who was, of course, the biggest prey. That's who she wanted to take down because of the money. At that point in time, Harry was a small fish now. She had already wheedled her way into his will as his beneficiary. But it seems that she was spending less time with him. So they believed that essentially Harry came to her apartment trying to figure out what was going on in their relationship. It's Christmas time. He wants to see her. Maybe he brought her a gift and ended up asking if he could come up to her apartment that night. And Barbara, while he is not the biggest fish, she's a good little wriggler on the line who is going to benefit her somehow eventually when he dies. So she's got to give him the bare minimum to make sure he doesn't change his will. So they believe that he came over probably unannounced that evening of December... 23rd or December 22nd, I guess, December 22nd, and that she might have already taken a quaalude, had some wine, might not have been totally with it. Who knows? And apparently Harry was a big, big coffee drinker. Everyone who knew him said this. Everyone who worked with him said he was constantly drinking coffee. His family said it was all hours of the night. There was no time he wasn't drinking coffee. That's crazy. Yeah. So... They think that she might have been kind of already out of it, was like, whatever, dude, come on up. 
And he was like, okay, I'm just going to fix myself a cup of coffee so we can talk and hang out. And that he went to her cupboard where perhaps she was keeping the cyanide and put what he thought was a teaspoon of sugar in his cup. But it was not sugar. It was cyanide, which apparently is indistinguishable from sugar in its crystalline form. Realizing at the time that he was dying. So maybe he was blindly panicking because they said he would have felt with that much cyanide, his mouth and his throat would start burning immediately. And so it's possible that he was panicking and might have lurched at Barbara if she was at all intoxicated and didn't know that he had consumed the cyanide. She probably thought he was attacking her. So therefore... It looks like, based on the autopsy, she had kicked him as hard as possible in the groin area, resulting in that injury, and then taken, if they're in the kitchen, the first thing that she saw, a frying pan, and beat him into submission with it. I mean, that tracks, I guess. It's wild speculation, but it does track. It's the only thing that would make this crazy, bizarre series of events because it did not make sense. She shouldn't have wanted Harry dead. And it certainly didn't make sense that after she poisoned him that she would beat him as well. It also makes sense because just about one teaspoon, give or take, would have resulted in cyanide to the tune of 37 times the fatal dose being in Harry's body versus the much more appropriate dose administered to Jerry Davies. Yep. Wow. Okay. These prosecutors are like Sherlock over here. Ironically, Barbara had been convicted of the murder she did not mean to commit, which was Harry's. And she had been acquitted of the one she had planned all along. Oh, my God. Wow. So crazy. So crazy. And we've got a Wikipedia fun fact. Yes, we do. Winter of Frozen Dreams was a movie. It was turned into a movie that came out in 2009. You could rent it in really bad SD for a buck 99 on Amazon, guys. Thora Birch plays Barbara. Whoa. Which is interesting. Throwback. Yeah, super throwback. She also looks real good. Thora Birch is looking real hot in this. I did not watch a ton of it, I got to say, because it was very depressing. You know how, um, I think it was To Die For, I think they like did the Pamela Smart case like with Nicole Kidman and it was very like tongue in cheek and like kind of fun. Not fun, like murder's not fun, but you guys get it. It's like, it was like kind of fantastical. They did this like straight, like an indie movie and it was a little much, I have to say, but it has like a lot of really good actors in it. Not great ratings. And I gotta say, this is really bad. The Wikipedia says that the budget was $1 million, but it only made $8,000 at the box office. I mean, that's depressing in and of itself. Oh my gosh. Dean Winters, you guys will probably recognize the name. He was the guy who's the terrible boyfriend in 30 Rock. And he's in all those insurance ads. He's super funny. He played Ken Curtis, the owner of the massage parlor that turns on her. And Max Medina from Gilmore Girls, one of Lorelai's boyfriends, played Barbara's attorney. So there were some good actors in this. It just did not take off. I didn't even watch the rest of it. I tried. I was like, flippity flopped. Flippity flopped. Well, Jesse, you did a great job of pulling that story up without finding it anywhere else. That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm I'm surprised that this is not one that's 
covered everywhere because it's seasonal and it is shocking. And the twists, the turns, the mystery, the scandal involved, the brightness of Barbara's future, and the fact that she has never talked. She's an enigma. It's incredible. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I know I was pretty blown away when I was doing my research. In conclusion, stay in school, kids. Stay in school. Don't start working at Jan's health spa that's no health spa at all, period. And stay off the lewds. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason those quaaludes have been discontinued. If you are going through your old Aunt Edna's party supplies after she passes from the 1970s and you find a couple lewds, you throw them right in the trash. Don't you dare take those or lewds. Or the toilet. Whatever. Don't flush them. Don't do it. <laughs> And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one has a Christmas where they're digging a dead body out of a snowbank instead of eating a nice roasty toasty goose. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.